Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Welcome to the Least of These Podcasts. We reach out to those the world has forgotten. If you'd like to know more about us and how you can donate to help us fulfill our mission, go to hisloveministries.net. Thank you very much and God bless you. chapter 9 verse 5 and we'll probably just cover a couple of verses today actually we're the last part of verse 4 excuse me talking about that but remember the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness that comes from God through faith that's the only way we can be righteous right it's through his righteousness that we receive by faith by asking him to forgive us and save us And so the first three chapters tell us that we're all condemned. That's the bad news. And then the last part of chapter three, he begins to tell us how we can be saved. And he tells us about Abraham and David, how they're saved. Even though David's a great and mighty man, that he's also one of the worst sinners in the Old Testament. And God says that Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. When we get to chapter five, he tells us that we're secure in Christ, and then he tells us about how the, the first Adam lost so much, but the last Adam gained so much more for us. And then chapter 6, he tells us to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ, put off the old man basically to live like we ought to, not live like we used to. And in chapter 7, Paul says, I got a problem. I can't do the things I want to do. And the things I don't want to do, I do those. He said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank my God through Christ Jesus. And in chapter 8, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that great chapter that crescendos with nothing should separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not a thing. And he names all these different things. And he says, because we're in Christ, we live for Christ. And he uses the word Holy Spirit about 20 times in that chapter. So in chapter 9 here, we began talking about Paul's heart for, the, for his Jewish brethren, that he uses three witnesses, his conscience, uh, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And he says he has great sorrow, and he says he, he could almost wish, if it were possible, that he would go to hell for his brethren if they could just go to heaven and trust Christ. And then he goes on and he, he tells them because of his heart. Remember, Paul was looked on as an enemy by the Jews because they thought that he didn't teach the law anymore and he's teaching the perverted thing when all he was doing was teaching the gospel that was always there in the Old Testament, right? They, they just didn't receive the Messiah. They haven't received the Messiah, most of them. And one day the Bible says they will look on him whom they pierced and realize that Jesus was the true Messiah. And so he begins to tell them not only his great concern, but he begins to tell them of all their great privileges 
that they should be thankful for those things. And he talked about that they were God's people and God named them the Israelites and they were adopted by him. They were chosen as his, his, his child, his only child in the Old Testament. He revealed his glory to them and he gave them the covenants. And that's kind of where we finished last week, talking about those conditional and unconditional covenants that, that the conditional covenants were the things that said, if you do this, I will bless you. And if you don't do this, then I will curse you, right? And of course, they spent most of their time being cursed because a man on his own cannot do what the law says, right? Remember, the law was given us to uh, show us we need a savior. Then there was the unconditional covenants, which was the biggest one is, of course, the promise of the savior one day. And an unconditional covenant is the one that God makes with himself. And he says, I could swear by nothing greater. So I swore by myself. And he made that covenant with Abraham that he was going to bless all the families of the earth through him. That was through the Messiah that was coming. So let's look at the last part of verse 4. And the next privilege that they had was the giving of the law. And of course that talks of Deuteronomy chapter 5 where Moses receives the law of Mount Sinai and remember that his his people I remember in that Shelly and I had a discussion a while back about that about how the people were afraid to come close to the mountain because the thunderings and the lightnings and all of these things and they said God they said to Moses said you speak to him speak to God we are afraid of him you go speak to him we'll stay over here and you speak to them, you know. Of course, they were rebellious and, and uh, ungodly people, and that was one reason they were afraid of him. You have cause to be afraid of God if you're not living right. Like I said, one of the chief criticisms of Paul by his Jewish countrymen was a claim that he quit teaching the law because he taught salvation was by grace through Jesus Christ, not by law-keeping. And that's how they thought they were going to get to heaven. It's amazing some of the stuff people talk about. People even today will say that they're going to heaven because of the Ten Commandments or I don't do this or I do that. And they think that they're going because they do this or they don't do that, they're going to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's pure grace. But the Bible also says if you're saved by grace, you will live like God wants you to. Not because you have to, because you want to now, because he puts a new heart in you. Paul did not discount the law's value, and he's already talked about that in chapter 3. And he says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And he answered, he said, much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. And that's what the receiving of the law means here. They had the word of God. He was in chapter 7. He said, even though I can't do what I want to do, he says, I don't say that the law is bad. The law is holy and it's good and the commandment is good. But I'm, I'm the one that has the problem because I can't keep it, right? This extraordinary advantage was only possessed by the Jews all the way up to the point where the New Testament comes, right? They were entrusted with God's word. They were entrusted with God's law. Of course, that spoke of all these laws that they were given i forget there was like 613 or 633 laws depending upon who you talk who you listen to but there was over 600 different laws that god gave in the old testament right 
And that's where it kind of leads us into the next thing, which is the temple worship, the service of God is what he's talking about. The service of God is talking about the temple worship. And that was talking about the Old Testament, the tabernacle. And remember, he gave all these rules and all these regulations, how to do this and how to not do that and all these things. And really, it refers, like I said, to those extensive rules and regulations and rituals that were practiced at the tabernacle and then at the temple in Jerusalem and even involved the construction of the temple itself and all the laws governing the various sacrifices and the times of year and the specified holy times. Remember, they had all these different times that they were supposed to come and set aside and they had this tabernacle of the booths and all these different things that they were to observe, right? And the importance of all those things were the fact that, you know, the very temple itself was a picture of Jesus Christ, right? And if you ever have heard one of those studies on that, that every part of the temple really refers to something that's part of what Jesus Christ is and what he's going to do, right? Down to the very, the most important part is that mercy seat where that means propitiation, where he means that he satisfies God's payment for our sins, right? And that's what that temple was all about. It was meant to show us that uh, God was holy and that you had to be approach God in a certain way. You just couldn't approach him anyway, right? Remember, what was it? Nadab and Abihu burned a strange fire and God killed them and you know all these different people they didn't approach God in the right way and so they were judged because of that all of these things the biggest thing that they showed was the only way we can approach God is through a blood sacrifice and that ultimately it was pointing to Jesus Christ right his ultimate sacrifice the lamb that takes away the sin of the world when we were going through the book of John that's what John the Baptist said, right? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Remember we said all of these things were, he says, to whom pertain. And I didn't have this verse written down. I wrote it down this week. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 35 through 37, it says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast, all, cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So God says, listen, Israel, my people, they're promised and I will never leave them and, and forsake them. But ultimately, one day, that they are my people, but they still have to trust me by faith. And then the next thing he says is he says here, in the promises. The promises, you know, this is separate from the covenants because the promises are those promises contained within the covenants, I believe, and also refer to the Messiah. Remember, there were all these promises that were given. You know, uh, one of the ones I always think about that gets misused, we were talking about this the other day, Jeremiah 
29 verse 11, you know, says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for a hope and a future, not for destruction and despair. And uh, and that was, first of all, given to Israel because they were, what, in captivity and they'd sinned and they'd done all these bad things. And God says, listen, there's a hope and a future for y'all. You know, every time God said he was doing something bad to them or he was doing something bad to them, in the end of the book, he'd always say, but wait a minute, there is hope. You know, and he does the same thing to us. He allows us to go through tough times, but he always says in the end, wait a minute, but there's hope. Because, you know, this isn't all that there is, right? And that verse gets so abused and people say, oh, you know, everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be beautiful. You know, and they, they use 29-11 for everything. They say, oh, everything's just wonderful. But I don't understand how these people say that when they have problems, you know. And, and some of these people that teach us health, wealth, and prosperity, but yet they're sick and have all these problems. And yet they want to say, okay, well, you know, God doesn't ever let us get sick. God does all these things. But remember, God does have a hope for us. Jesus is our blessed hope. He is our future, right? And not only that, even though we're sick and even though we have tough times, God uses those things. And that future is really, it's a new future because we're in Christ. We've got a new way of living. But also, not only that, we have an ultimate future, right? And that's the ultimate fulfillment of that verse we have a hope and a future we got jesus as our blessed hope and we got a future in heaven for those that know jesus christ that's what he's talking about here and then he says also in verse five he says also verse five of whom are the fathers and what's he talking about here he's talking about the patriarchs right abraham isaac and jacob and I guess in a looser sense, you could throw Moses and David in there possibly. But these were these special great men that remember Genesis 25, somewhere all the way through the end of Genesis, these great men are in there and they're there. And, and these are, were great men and, and God used them and, and chose them and set them apart to be his people. These are the people that that the Jews could look back on and say, these were our fathers. This is our heritage. You know, many people say, well, my folks came over on the Mayflower. My folks this, my folks that. I always tell them, say, hey, you know what? I'm a son of Jesus Christ. Amen to that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my heritage is I'm a son of Jesus Christ. But they could look back and say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these were our fathers, right? These were the people that God spoke to and promised all these things to. It's good to have a godly heritage, but you know what? We need to be godly now too, right? <laughs> but it's always nice to have a godly heritage to come from because sometimes you got a good foundation to start with. Some people don't have anything to start with. And then he talks about the last part of verse 5, and from, from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came, who is over all the eternal, eternally blessed God. The next thing he says is not only do they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service or the service of God and the promises. They have the fathers, the patriarchs, but they also have Jesus Christ, the promise of Jesus Christ who came through their family line according to the flesh, right? 
Remember Jesus is what? All God and all man, right? But according to the flesh, he's the seed of David. He came from the patriarchs. He came from their ancestors. And remember that word Christ is the same word that we get anointed one from. It's, to, it's just basically the Greek word. The Hebrew is Messiah, right? Which means anointed one. But the Greek is Christ, and it means the same thing. So that's all that is, is Messiah is the Hebrew, and Christ is the Greek name. But they all mean the same thing. But Christ is the one that was anointed. And remember, there were only three groups of leaders that were anointed with that special holy oil that had God's anointing on them. The kings of Israel, the high priest of Israel, and also the prophets of Israel. Like I said, it's a symbol of God's choosing and equipping them for his service. And you know what? Jesus fulfilled all three of those anointed offices, right? When he came, he's prophet and priest, and he was king of a sort, but one day he's coming again as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? And that's going to be a glorious day. Remember, we started out this book in Romans 1-3, and it said that it was concerning the gospel's preach, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born in the seed of David according to the flesh. So its fulfillment is that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the next thing we see here is when we look at this human ancestry, that they need to look and realize that this the Jews, Paul mentions this, and the Jews would immediately know what he was talking about, but you know what? They didn't want nothing to do with it, just like they don't want anything to do with it today, right? Because they don't want to recognize that Jesus is Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah to come. And there's a confusion. What happens in the Old Testament, there was like in the prophecies, like in Isaiah 61, and Jesus says, you know, he came to set the captives free and set at liberty those who were bound and those who were oppressed and all these things. And remember, he was in the temple and, and it says, and he closed the book and he says, today these things are fulfilled. Well, Isaiah 61 goes on to say, and, and to show the acceptable year of the Lord. And it talks about him coming back as king of kings. And what these Jews didn't understand as they read the Old Testament scriptures were both of those were fulfillments of Jesus. But the first part of the verses would be what happened the first time he came. But they didn't realize there was a mountaintop or a valley between the first coming and the second coming. And the second part that refers when he comes again. And he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so they didn't understand that. Remember, Paul didn't just put things together as a random collection of events or things that he's just showing us here. He's, in other words, uh, the word that comes to mind is he doesn't put them together willy-nilly. You know, he just doesn't throw things together. But this is, a, this is a very close connection between all of these things. What happens is each one leads to the next one. Each one is predicated on the one before that. In other words, what does he say here? He says, first of all, he, he called these people the Israelites. He, he chose his people and he adopted them as his sons, right? And, and if we look at that, that's the right thing. That, that's the same thing that happens as believers. What does he do? He first adopts us, his children. 
The Bible says he does what? He gives us a new name, right? There's a new name written down in glory. Of course, that new name was written down before the foundation of the earth. It was not written down the moment you get saved. But then adoption is the right starting place because it, it's the place where salvation occurs when God forgives us and saves us. And then also after he adopts us as his children, what does he do? He begins to reveal himself right through that glory. And that's what he did to the Jews. That glory now we have inside of us because we have what? The Holy Spirit. But we also are led to understand him more and more and more. And that's how he revealed himself. Then the next thing that happens is he gives the covenants, right? He enters into those special agreements or covenants with people. And once you become a Christian, you've got a new way of living, right? And then he talks about the giving of the law, which, you know, ultimately was to show people they needed Christ. But we begin to live by that law because not because we have to, but because we want to. Then he says here that we serve God and then we live on the promises, right? And that's the way it, it flows here in this section. And remember Israel, Israel, remember all the stuff in the Old Testament, the physical is always a picture of the spiritual. In the Old Testament, they were physically blessed. But in the New Testament, the Bible says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I believe the Old Testament Israelites with their, their physical blessings were a picture of what we get in the New Testament with our spiritual blessings, right? And so they're really a picture of what a Christian gets from God. And let's finish up this verse. We're only going to finish this one verse today. He says, Of whom are the fathers of whom, whom according to the flesh Jesus Christ came... And then he makes this very clear statement and people have tried to pervert this and he says, who is over all the eternally blessed God, amen. And what Paul really says here is, who's God over all forever, amen. You know, forever blessed, amen. And what he's doing is he's just giving us a clear affirmation of Christ's deity, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is He's referring here to Jesus Christ. But, you know, it's very plain, but some people have tried to play games with the punctuation and all these things. Remember, there wasn't really any punctuation in the Greek alphabet uh, when they wrote stuff in the Bible. They actually didn't even put spaces or anything in there, right? They just wrote from, what was it, from right to left. They wrote backwards. And they left no spaces to remember paper and whatever they wrote on was at a premium. They didn't leave any spaces. Or the Greek a lot of times doesn't have all these verbs and all these things, but they're implied within it because Greek is a very complex language. Even though they say it's very simple, it might be simple to speak, but it's not real easy to learn all the endings and all these things. But people have tried to play games with this. But what he's really saying is the same thing Colossians 1.15 says, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that he's God over all, right? The New Testament writers, they kind of restrain themselves and don't really a lot of times say that Jesus is God. But you know what? Because they don't want you to think that, that the Father just left heaven and left heaven unattended and that that. He came down to earth 
because remember we know as Christians if if we believe the Bible correctly that there's a trinity that there's a three in one God right there's one God in three persons and we don't know how to explain that one man said if you try to explain it you lose your mind but if you try to explain it away you lose your salvation not that you could lose it but you'd never be truly saved because you have to believe that God exists in three persons, just like we talk about ourselves and we say, me, myself, and I, right? There are places where he says that, where Jesus is is called God. And we'll just mention a few of those and we'll close out today. Just like at the beginning of the Gospel of John, remember he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to say there was nothing created, it was created without him that he created all things and by him and for him all things were created and he goes on to talk about that and uh, John 1 verse 14 he said the word became flesh and what dwelt among us right Acts chapter 20 verse 28 he talks about that he says that uh, that you were bought with the precious blood of God he says and he's, he's equating that to Jesus. And then Hebrews 1.8 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And of course, the best example is really over in Titus chapter 2, verse uh, 13. And he talks about that in verse 14. He says, We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? And apart from that context, you could say he was talking about about just God, but he's talking about Jesus, right? So even though the the New Testament writers don't always, excuse me, identify Jesus with God and know that they're the same, they do. And like I said, they don't want to confuse the issue. When they say God, they're mostly saying God the Father, right? And they want to separate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to realize that they're not three gods, but the three one God and manifest in three different persons. You know, and there's a heresy out there, it's called modalism, that sometimes God is the Father, sometimes He's the Son, and sometimes He's the Holy Spirit. But that's not true. He's always God, but He's He manifests Himself in three different persons at the same time. John Calvin said of this attempt to separate God from Christ by splitting up the text is to separate this clause from the rest of the context for the purpose of depriving Christ of this clear witness to his divinity is a bold attempt to create darkness where there's full light. And there's another guy named Robert Haldane that says it a little bit better. He says the scriptures have many real difficulties which are calculated to try or to increase our faith. I'd never thought of it that way. The difficulties in the scriptures are to try or to increase our faith. That God puts those things in. I always wonder, well, why didn't he just make it a little clearer? You know, it's because I guess as Paul or Peter says that many pervert their scriptures to their own destruction, right? And he says here, they're evidently designed to enlarge our acquaintance with the word of God by obliging him more diligently to search into them and place his dependence on the spirit of truth. But when a language so clear as in the present passage is perverted, 
to avoid recognizing the obvious truth contained in the divine testimony, it more fully manifests the depravity of human nature and the rooted hatred of the carnal mind against God than the grossest works of the flesh. In other words, he says, we're just trying to pervert the scriptures if we're trying to separate Jesus and say this is not speaking of Jesus. So we had a couple of lessons. One of them we talked about last week, and we'll just talk about it again this week. They had all these privileges, and we think of all the things we've been given. They didn't have the whole Bible. We've got the whole Bible. We've got the whole revelation of God. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required, right? Luke 12, 46 to 48 says, The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. To whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And then the second lesson is we need to believe that Jesus is God and in him and him only can we be saved, right? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. You know, when we think about all the wonderful things that we've been given and all the things that God has done for us, we ought to be just overawed and, and just, I don't know how to say it, but just uh, as I was talking with somebody yesterday, they just said as they took communion, that they were just so broken up by all the things as they sat and took communion and thought about all the wonderful things that God had done for them. And just, it just broke them up. You know, we ought to be like that. We ought to be so grateful and so thankful for what God's done for us and, and to realize that, that He has given us so much more than we could ever want or deserve, you know. And as one guy says, uh, I think it was Michael Easley, he says, if God, never, if God never did another single thing for you the rest of your life, would you still serve Him? Because you know what? What He's done is enough way more than what we deserve. Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Please help us reach out to those the world has forgotten. Everyone we minister to is locked up in some way, shape, or form. Those in the nursing home facilities are locked up in bodies that do not work in a wheelchair or in a bed. We minister to children and youth who are locked up because of behavioral problems. Some have told us we want to have a real family because their parents have lost or given up custody of them. Other kids are locked up because they've committed crimes. We also minister to those locked up at the jails and the prisons, to those locked up in addictions, 
to drugs, alcohol, depression, and suicidal thoughts, to those locked up in a variety of other things that keep them from becoming who Jesus wants them to be. He came to give us abundant life, joy, and set us free, and these people that we minister to are not free. Our desire is to show them whatever their background, no matter what they've done, to see how much God loves them. We seek to help them receive forgiveness and freedom from their sin in Jesus Christ. We minister in the local area of Savannah, Georgia, and surrounding Effingham and Chatham area. We have recently expanded our ministry to the Lexington and Columbia, South Carolina area. We do over 2,000 services every year. We hope and pray that you will support us in some way that so we can continue our mission. Go to hisloveministries.net and click on the Donate Now button or send it via regular mail to Post Office Box 1881, Lexington, South Carolina, 29071. We hope and pray that you will do that. Thank you and God bless you. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 832.